You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 14 in our sacrament series and our first episode on matrimony. We're happy to have Father Jonathan Loop, the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy, join us for the first of three episodes on this sacrament. Today, we'll be looking at the basis of marriage. We'll look at its institution, and we'll also look at the purposes of marriage. Are there some purposes that are more important than others? We'll also look at what marriage is in its essence. Is it a natural union, a supernatural union, or both? And what about the sacramental grace of this sacrament? Is it different than the other sacraments in any particular way? We'll take three episodes to go through this sacrament because it is so attacked by the world and by modernism today. If you like these series and want to help us continue making them, you can help by leaving a small monthly or one-time donation on sspxpodcast.com or by subscribing to this channel on YouTube or by subscribing and leaving a rating for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And thank you for helping us with this apostolate to reach as many people as possible with the beauty and the truth of what it means to be a traditional Catholic. Now let's join Father Loop for episode 14 of the sacrament series right now. Well, uh, like I said, we're talking about matrimony today, Father. Um, We've gone through several of the sacraments already. Where do we start with our discussion on the sacrament of matrimony, Father? I think perhaps the best way to, to look at it, just by exploring a little anecdote, in fact, from the life of our patron, St. Pius X, right when he was chosen by Leo XIII to be a bishop, well, after being consecrated and before entering his diocese, he went for a little bit of time to visit his, his family, and particularly his mother in his hometown. And being a, a son and wanting to please his mother, uh, when he saw her, he showed her his Episcopal ring and said, oh, my, isn't it beautiful? Mm. And she looked at it and was like, yes, yes, son, this is a very lovely and beautiful ring. And then she pointed to her own wedding band and said, but you want to remember that if it weren't for this one, you wouldn't have what you have now. Wow. And it's a, in a way, a beautiful thought insofar as it, on the one hand, shows a very deep link with the sacrament of matrimony and even the priesthood at its highest level. But also, we may say just on a more mundane level, it's precisely through that institution of marriage, well-practiced, that we find the stability and the we may say, the source of the holiness that allows souls, such as St. Pius X, to respond to the call of God and to be willing to give of themselves fully, let's say in the state of the priesthood or in the religious life, or even in their own turn as a good father and a mother. So it's a very beautiful thing. And as we are going to look at the sacrament of matrimony, it's, it's a delightful one. In many ways, you know, aside from all the, the jokes that may be out there from time to time about it. But it is delightful. And we can see that in part by how our Lord, what his attitude was towards it, which is manifested in part by the fact that he performed his very first miracle on the occasion of a wedding. And not only that, but a, a miracle that was not a healing, not a raising of somebody from the dead, but rather a making sure that a young couple was not embarrassed by the fact of running out of wine. He, right. uh, uh, by some measures, um, performed a very generous miracle in giving them a large amount of 
as the uh, chief steward said, a very, very good wine. Um, right. And not only that, but he also frequently would compare heaven to a wedding feast. You know, there are several parables where he uh, explicitly says wedding uh, or the, the kingdom of God is like unto a king who made a wedding feast for his son. You know, in other words, there's an element of that joy that we see at a good wedding that our Lord wants us to understand is a foretaste of what he's prepared for those who love him. And similarly, in the Apocalypse, the very last book of the Bible, which deals especially towards the latter part uh, with the end times, he speaks of the new Jerusalem, the, the new heavens and the new earth, and he says, or rather he puts in the mouth of St. John, uh, the following, And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So clearly, our Lord has a great love for this beautiful sacrament, this beautiful institution that he's given to human beings. So it mirrors understanding well as a result. If it is so great, if our Lord has such a high regard for it, we ourselves want to get a glimpse of what it is and what the church has always taught it to be. Not only because of that, but also we can add, because for many people, it's how they're going to really uh, come into contact with many aspects of the charity of God. And given the context of, let's say, our series here, it's also a way in which many people have felt very intimately in their own lives a lot of the change in attitude and spirit that we've seen in the church since Vatican II. Because there's, as we'll see, been a very profound shift in the vision of what matrimony is on multiple levels, in fact. Right. So. So and that, that's uh, those are beautiful reflections on, on the importance of marriage. And, and you're right. There are so many jokes about about marriage, you know, even even within the context of of being Catholic. It's um, I've, I've heard the joke made, you know, sac the marriage sacrament and the ritual is right next to the right for burial. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, but it is beautiful. And, and there's, there's plenty that could be, could be said about it regardless. Um, so when we're, we're looking at the traditional right of marriage first, father, should we take a look at what mm -hmm. marriage really is before we dive into the ceremony? For two reasons. Firstly, because, um, the ceremony that the church has in the Roman ritual for marriage presupposes much of what the church has taught about marriage, its purposes, what it is, etc. It doesn't necessarily, uh, let's say, explicitly speak about them in every respect. And secondly, because the rite itself, the actual sacrament of matrimony, as it's contained in the Roman ritual, is exceedingly brief maybe taking up two pages, um, as, as opposed to, say, the sacrament of baptism, which you know, goes on, and rightly so, for you know, maybe about 10 pages or so, just given the preparations mm. that are immediately needed for it. Um, and it's true that normally, uh, after the sacrament is given by the spouses to each other, 
the church foresees that the mass will be said and that the two, the new, newly married couple assist at mass for the first time united in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I think would be good to do would be to try to, at one and the same time, explore a little bit what the church has always taught about marriage in the context precisely of that right to kind of see as we go through, let's say the purpose of marriage, its essence and things like that, how that is manifested in the traditional right. It might help a little bit, especially okay. given the fact that it's so dense, that the right itself is so dense. And maybe just to start at the beginning, especially in our context, and, the, and what I mean by that is in the modern world. So I was just, I'm just preparing a young couple, actually two young couples uh, for marriage. And we just had our initial uh, class, uh, which deals with marriage as a, a natural institution from God. And one of the things that we saw together was the simple fact that the world around us has such a deeply different vision of what matrimony is. It makes it hard for us. And even if we can maybe give the catechism answer on some level about what marriage is, where it comes from, it's not part of us in the same way that it certainly would have been for the faithful in the ages of faith. So it's good to keep coming back to those truths and to try to allow them to penetrate us a little more. Especially, especially when we will come to look at the changes that have been introduced into the right of marriage and the understanding of marriage in the wake of Vatican II. Okay. So just as an initial uh, fact, and it sounds a bit obvious, but it has immense consequences, is that marriage as an institution is not of human origin but rather is something that depends entirely and solely on the will of God, um, both as to uh, establishing what it's for, the conditions in which it's meant to be observed, and, um, and how to judge it as good or bad. Now, we all are aware of the fact that you know, God, in the beginning of the human uh, race, um, established in the Garden of Eden, both Adam and Eve, and that he commanded them to be married, ultimately. Um, and it's interesting, the way that God presents that is that it was not good for man to be alone. And there's a lot that's behind that observation of God. Firstly, that man is by nature a social creature. In order to, for any of us to be able to really achieve our goal and our end, we have need of our fellows, both for mundane needs. You know, we, we find the fact that uh, we need a division of labor in order to take care of the simple fact of clothes. You know, and I'm sure that the shirt that you're wearing, is very nice indeed, if I may say so myself. You Thank know, you. it was not something you sat down at a loom and made for yourself. It's like, all right, okay, I need a shirt today. You know, not this one. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, I'd be interested to see the one that you did make the next time we do yeah. this. Uh, um, but it also on a higher level, we're, we're social, meaning that we need uh, fellow human beings in order to um, have access to the higher goods that our nature is capable of, such as friendship, 
such as love. You know, in other words, we wouldn't be able to exercise those without friends, without people that we could love. And the basic element of society, uh, of any society, in fact, is marriage. Uh, that union of a man and a woman uh, overseeing the fruit of their love, the children God's given them. And that's precisely what God says. You know, if we look at Genesis, um, we hear that, And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Let us make him a help like unto himself. It's in the second chapter, and it's very intriguing because, you know, you might think that God would immediately, you know, bring forth the woman. But instead what he does is he creates all manner of animals and brings them before Adam. Adam names them. And in the course Hmm. of that activity, he realizes there is no one like me amongst all these animals. I'm completely unique amongst all the species. And after that little episode, then God, uh, we read, puts, cast a deep sleep upon Adam. And when he was fast asleep, he took one of his ribs and filled up flesh for it. And the Lord God built the rib, which he took from Adam into a woman, and he brought her to Adam. And Adam said, this now was bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So that that need to live together with another member of our own race is first fulfilled by this woman taken from the man himself. And it indicates that that's the very will of God, that that, that yearning for companionship be expressed truly in marriage. And as we also heard there, God says he needs a helpmate like unto himself. And St. Thomas Aquinas, in commenting on that in the first part of his Summa, in the 92nd question, said that it was necessary for woman to be made, as the scripture says, as a helper to man, as a helper in the work of generation. Now we'll see in a few moments that that's, in fact, a huge thing. Um, But for the moment, we can at least say that it's God's will that man and woman work together in order to continue the human race and to do so by bringing forth new life and guiding it, in fact. And so not unsurprisingly, uh, one of the first commands that God gives to Adam and Eve is the one that's very famous, that they increase and multiply And here we have to go back to the first chapter of Genesis. There's actually two separate accounts of the formation of man. And in this case, so this is uh, verses 27 and 28 of that first chapter. It said that God created man to his own image. To the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, saying, increase and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fishes of the sea, and the fowls of the air, and all the living creatures that move upon the earth. So, that command to give life comes directly from God. And the reason that he gives man and woman to each other is precisely that they may, we can almost put it as, share in his creative work. 
and that's not merely a poetic, poetical expression because the, the doctrine of the church is that at the moment of every new and distinct conception, God creates the soul for the body that's generated by the father and the mother. And so it really is not merely, let's say, um, filling up the earth with more material beings, but rather it's a sharing in God's creative activity. And that's something that he wills. And as an aside, you know, I was just I was talking with my juniors and seniors here in Immaculate Conception, and I gave them a short passage from a Mormon text. This is very intriguing. Of course, you're down in Phoenix. You have a bunch of Mormons down there. I grew up with a bunch of Mormons. They're they're charming people. Um, yeah. Very interesting. And uh, they have some very intriguing ideas about God. And in this particular instance, the, the author was speaking about the fall. And he basically states, and if I'm not mistaken, this is a common opinion amongst Mormons, that the fall was actually positively good. Not because, of course, it, you know, as we hear in the Easter Vigil, um, was the occasion of the God taking human nature and becoming such a redeemer for us, but rather because if Adam and Eve had not fallen, they would not have been able to have kids. You know, so before they fell, no kids. And how, therefore, can they follow through on that command to increase and multiply? They were put in a catch-22. It's like, well, we can either sin and have kids like God wants us to, or we can, you know, obey God and not have kids like he wants us to. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Just as an aside, I'm glad I'm not a Mormon. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So don't don't think about it too much. It'll be it'll be painful. No, no, I okay. thank you. Yeah, thank you. I was, I was trying to go down that, and I just I'll stop. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Now, the other aspect, even in the uh, let's say the creation, that initial act of God of uniting Adam and Eve, also brings out several of the properties of marriage um, that are very important to realize. Firstly. The unity of marriage, the fact that it's intended to be between one man and one woman. Right. St. John Chrysostom, in uh, a commentary that he gives on St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in the passage, in fact, that's used for the nuptial mass, says as follows. Can you not see how close this union is and how God prov providentially created it from a single nature? He permitted Adam to marry Eve who is more than a daughter or a sister, she was his own flesh. And God caused the entire human race to proceed from this one point of origin. In other words, true marriage, as originally from the hands of God, implies this profound unity. And in a way, every single marriage, you might go so far as to assert, is trying to return to that unity. As God says, they will be two in one flesh, ultimately. And also the indissolubility. And this too, so um, we see that in that commentary in the epistle, the unity in the epistle, and then the indissolubility in the gospel of the nuptial mass, where we read that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they too shall be in one flesh. Therefore, now they are not two, but one flesh. Wherefore, God, what God hath joined together, let not man put us under. The context of that comment, of course, is the fact that the Pharisees were asking what, for what cause a man might put away his wife. 
And under right. Moses, they have been granted a certain dispensation to allow for divorce. And our Lord says, all right, Moses allowed that because of your hardness of hearts. And St. Thomas, in commenting on that, says, you Moses didn't want them killing their wives so that they could be free to marry somebody else. All right. Um, but what our Lord did is restored it to its original purity and pristine uh, indissolubility at that moment. Okay. And so all of that we can see in those few lines taken from Genesis, where, where we uh, witness God and his uh, institution of marriage. And here it's something interesting remark that when we look at marriage, it's the only human institution of any kind whatsoever to survive both the fall and the flood. You know, both major chastisements in human history. And this is something that the church brings out in the uh, longest of the nuptial blessings at the nuptial mass. And so at a certain point in it, the church in speaking to the married couple in particular to the, to the young bride says that, Oh God, through whom man and woman are united and to human society thus inaugurated, a blessing is given which alone was not forfeited in the punishment for original sin, nor through the judgment of the flood. Um. You know, we're dealing with something ancient and venerable, and ultimately, we can add divine, since it's something that's directly a reflection of the will of God for man. And one very critical conclusion that we can, say, draw from all that is that when we look at marriage, we're dealing with a reality that's not fundamentally at all subject to the human will. It's something that God has established, given parameters that we simply have to respect. And that's true even on the natural level before we consider the question of it as a sacrament. You know, it's, um, it's something that we have to uh, protect and try to yield to. Furthermore, it's also a sacred reality, even when we consider it uh, according to its nature before the sacrament. It's something that deserves our awe and our reverence. And as a result, um, all of our efforts to protect. Okay. Um, so far, does that make sense? Or do you have any questions? Or It, it does. And I hadn't considered that as being, you know, uh, one of the the blessing that has continued through the through the fall and the flood that's a that's a beautiful reflection good you heard that when you were married so well i was <laughs> definitely paying attention father <laughs> well that makes very very good sense it's why i normally uh talk to a married couple long in advance about that blessing because it's Great. true the time of the wedding is not a very um recollected time often right um so okay. so that is that's the institution of it um okay. so could we then look at the the purpose of of okay. marriage, Father? It, it would seem that it's you know God said He will make uh, Eve as a helpmate. Is it wives and husbands are supposed to help each other? Is that the purpose? Okay, good. In a certain sense, in fact, there's two senses we can answer yes to that question. Um, in the first place, what the Church has traditionally taught is that uh, marriage as such is for procreation. That is, in other words, that first command 
that Adam and Eve received from God to increase and to multiply. And that's what St. Thomas says is the chief way in which Eve was intended to be a helper for Adam, uh, to be able to give him the opportunity to become a father. So in other words, to transmit life and to uh, share the great good that he himself had received. It's a very noble thing. Um, and here, this is something that comes through frequently in the traditional rite, especially, we may say, in the nuptial blessings. Uh, so, for example, we look at the second nuptial blessing. So that's the longer of the three. So maybe just to take a brief step back, when we when I speak of these nuptial blessings, in the course of the nuptial mass, meant to follow the wedding, there are three blessings directed towards the couple and even more specifically towards the wife. Um, the first two together come right after the pater noster, um, right during the mass. And then the third of them is given right before the last blessing of and the last gospel at the end of mass. Okay. Okay, so the, and again, it's designed to shower forth God's riches on this couple as they begin their life together. They begin their new home. So like I was saying, in the second of those, it's, it's the longest and it's very beautiful. Um, towards the end of it, uh, the church prays for the young wife that she may be, may, well, that children may enrich her. In other words, they're a treasure. There's something that she should devoutly hope for and pray for precisely because they'll make her more wealthy not necessarily uh no financially (laughs) but certainly uh in the in the case of the soul right and then furthermore both again in that second blessing and then the third blessing um this comes to the very end of each of those um their pray the church prays that the couple may they both see their children's children under the third and fourth generations and attain to a merited and desired old age. Mm. So, um, and we'll lead into something else too, but what the church is clearly trying to communicate and what she's always taught is that God chiefly has given us this very beautiful reality in order to allow a man and a woman to share in the gift of life, to be able to uh, become a father, become a mother, and in turn, as is kind of implied in that question of seeing their children of the third and fourth generation, allow those children through their upbringing that they receive to be able in turn to transmit and to share that life. You know, it's in two ways that you know, a man and a woman are allowed to share in the act of God, the mere, the mere uh, creation of life, and then making that life, that new child, capable in his own time of sharing in that gift of life. It's a very beautiful mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And together with that, um, the church has always taught that um, when a man and a woman give themselves to each other, you know, for the for that marital union that's open to life, it always has to be open to that question of the potential of a new conception. You know, and if that's partly that's the right, that's precisely the right that they give to each other. Um, 
and it's something that you know, Pius XII comments in a, a conference that he gives to um, to doctors, in fact, that God himself has set the limits of that, that act in that context of sharing with his work of creating new life. At the very least, being uh, leaving that possibility open, should he so please, to, to make use of it. Now, as a necessary consequence of this, and this has already been kind of implied by that question of uh, the couple seeing their children's children to the third and fourth generation, is it's not merely bringing forth, you know, a physical human being into the world. They also have the responsibility of educating the child, you know, taking this more or less this bundle of pure potential and working it so that it, on the one hand, and from the natural point of view, is capable of becoming a full and good human being. So training the intellect, you know, helping it to flower, putting it in contact with truths, and at the same time, molding the will to delight in noble and good uh, realities and to turn away from all that is ignoble. You know, it's a huge part of it. You know, it's something that's not spontaneous in a child. So, um, you know, from a little child's point of view, everything, well, it has no tools to tell what is good what is from what is bad. Everything attracts it equally, effectively. And it's only through the guidance of its parents that it can begin to distinguish between what's what's proper for me and what's not. But this education is not merely natural. In fact, there is no such thing as a merely natural education. Um, in fact, uh, Saint, as Pius XI says in his um, excellent encyclical on education, Divini Elius Magistri, the only true education is Catholic or Christian. And that entails that's something that's a unity. Every single thing that's offered to the child is meant to be unified by that vision of what its ultimate destiny is, which is to partake in the life of God in heaven, to be another Christ, as it becomes by baptism. So that means that the parents um, have to have it at heart as they're training the child's mind and its will to help it to be disposed and open to grace and to the sacraments. And indeed, to cooperate with the grace that God will give them to form Jesus Christ in the soul of their child. And as we'll come back to in a moment, this is one of the reasons why the church has always been very uh, strong in forbidding mixed marriages. In other words, a marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic, whether it be a schismatic from the Eastern Rites or Protestant or whatever, Namely, that that disjunction, that tension between the husband and wife uh, on that question about um, who God is, what he asks of us, is necessarily going to be a huge impediment to that unity of the education, especially on the supernatural level. Right. So that, that's, as I said, the primary purpose of marriage, you know, the um, increasing and multiplying, not merely giving physical life, but also uh, the life of the soul. Right. And then there are certain secondary helps. And this goes back to the other way of saying yes to the question that you asked there. You know, um, in the, 
let's say oftentimes we speak of the first or the secondary goals as being that mutual help of husband and wife. Um, on this on many levels, you know, obviously we, we have the question of being able to give life. You know, it's a man needs a woman, obviously. And, and indeed, that education is a lifelong thing. So you need that unity and that indissolubility of that marriage bond to assure that they can help each other fulfill that duty they receive from God until the end of their life. But then you also have questions of, you know, more mundane physical financial questions. Um, you know, that division of labor in the home, which allows for um, that flowering of our daily life. You know, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware that it's it's not an uncommon thing for a young man when he's by himself, you know, after leaving the home and what have you to be kind of a mess and a wreck. You know, he just can't, has a hard time taking care of himself, you know. Um, and it's in part when he finds a woman that gives him a purpose in life that he's able to put things together and also have her help him in a lot of day-to-day -day things. There's a great Calvin and Hobbes along these lines where Calvin's mom gets sick at a certain point. And so she's lying in bed and can't do anything. And you see Calvin and his dad in the kitchen and wondering what they're going to eat for dinner. And Calvin's sitting there saying, are we going to survive, you know, now that mom's mom's sick or maybe should we just order some food? And his, his dad's like, no, no, that's ridiculous. I'm definitely, I was, I was a great man. He's and Calvin's like, really? You know, mom says that before you met her, uh, you basically survived on cold waffles all the time in college. <laughs> and his dad's like, that's ridiculous. Now, can you, can you go find the syrup? Oh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of it's true. A, I mean, it's, it, it's gonna, I think it's more than kind of true. So, I mean, <laughs> that division of labor really does uh, give that both uh, delight and beauty to life and also the stability, in fact, for a lot of people. And together and over and above that, you have a certain emotional help that's given by a man for a woman and vice versa. You know, and in the second to those nuptial blessings, um, there's a section where the church goes through and lists a number of virtues for the wife in particular. And in particular, uh, linking it to um, the question of the the wives of the patriarchs. So we always hear about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here, the church speaks about Sarah, um, Rebecca, and Rachel, uh, three of the, the wives of the patriarchs, and talks about what their qualities were and how the, the woman, who's now a new married bride, should strive to imitate them. And one of the things that she asks for her is that is may she be dear to her husband as was Rachel. You know, it's a lovely thing. It's and it's in that emotional joy of having somebody who's dedicated and who makes your life worth living in a way. Um, and, and again, it's, it's good maybe just to very briefly think about that story because that was um, Jacob who... <laughs> it's yeah, it's quite a few interesting things about this story. So Jacob falls in love with Rachel, who's the, I guess, a cousin of his. Her dad, Laban, is the brother of his mom, Rebecca. And uh, he's so in love with her that Laban says, OK, fine, you can marry her, but you're going to have to work for me for seven years. And Jacob's like, deal. You know, I can I can handle that, you know, and it, the scripture says that those seven years were like a 
a few days because of the intensity of his love for her. He's like, it's like, this is nothing. I mean, it doesn't matter. The only problem is, okay, when they come to the marriage, um, they go through all the ceremonies. The next morning he wakes up, looks over and sees Rachel's older sister, Leah. It's like, this is a problem. (laughs) What's going on? He goes to, he goes to his uncle Laban. It's like, uh, and then, um, and, and Laban's like, Oh, I forgot to tell you, you know, in these last seven years, it's not our custom to marry the younger daughter before the older one. And unfortunately I hadn't been married yet. So, I mean, there you go. And, and, uh, Jake's like, all right. And Laban's like, but I'll make it, I'll make it good for you. If you work for me another seven years, I'll let you marry Rachel too. And Jake's, Jake's like, all right. So, I mean, it's, I mean, there's a lot to be said about that, but the point is like yeah. those four, those 14 years were nothing for him because of the joy that he, that he found in her. And the two, she only in the, so he's the, Jacob's the father of the 12 patriarchs. And she, in the end is only the mother of two of them, but the two that he loved best, Joseph, um, the one who was sold into Egypt and then Benjamin, uh, her, the, the youngest of his sons. So again, it's that emotional support. But then there's also a spiritual support, you know, and again, going back to that, that whole section of the second nuptial blessing, um, it focuses very much on the virtues of the wife, asking that God look down with favor on this thy handmaiden, who about to be united in wedlock begs to be strengthened by that protection. May it be in her a yoke of love and peace, loyal and pure, may she be wed in Christ, and ever follow the example of the saintly women. Maybe she be dear to her husband as was Rachel, wise as Rebecca, long-lived and loyal as Sarah. May nothing in her actions give the father of lies any hold upon her. May she be steadfast in faithfulness and duty, cherishing conjugal loyalty and shunning all that would threaten it. May she discipline and strengthen her weakness. May she be honored for her modesty, reverence for her chastity, and well-versed in heavenly teaching. May children enrich her. May she be honorable and innocent, and come at last to the peace of the just in the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, in the third nuptial blessing, we hear the church praying for both the husband and wife, that they may again see your children's children to their third and fourth generation, and afterwards possessed everlasting and boundless life. Those are so, beautiful. It's been a yeah. long time since I've I've read them again. It's um, it's really nice. Mm-hmm. And it's it's true. I mean, it's it's nobility of spirit, and it's reminding both the husband and wife what their goal is, which is now that they're married to help each other become better friends with God. And it's I mean, in a way that gives the greatest strength to a married couple is when they're they have that vision and can overcome, let's say, elements of their selfishness. And that, in fact, leads to the another of the secondary ends, uh, which is commonly uh, spoken of uh, marriage being a remedy for concupiscence. So it's secondary in the sense that it's below importance and ordered t- towards, and even in that case, the first, which is that gift of new life, And here, I think sometimes it can be poorly understood in the sense that it's uh, sometimes people might look at remedy of concupiscence and understand that to mean, well, okay, that simply means that now I can do without sin what otherwise would be a sin. And that's awesome. But that's not really what 
God or the church means. Instead, so when we speak of a remedy for concupiscence, it's to heal the concupiscence. And just very briefly, you know, concupiscence is effectively a selfishness. I seek myself, uh, my own pleasure, my own convenience, what have you. And marriage, since it's designed primarily for procreation, is meant to give the child or give the couple the ability to forget about themselves, to learn true selflessness. Every time that they enjoy the marital union, being open to life, which will make huge demands on them in time. Okay. So there, I would say, we have a bit of the, the purpose. At this point, we've kind of seen, I think, what the purpose of the marriage is. And that's going to help us to understand what the church has always understood to be its essence. Like, in other words, what precisely we're dealing with. And for this, we can look on it at two levels. Firstly, a natural understanding of what marriage is, and then a supernatural understanding. In other words, looking at it more from the point of view of the sacrament. What is the sacrament? So, so firstly, on the natural level, um, what the church has always defined marriage to be is a contract that the spouses make one with the other in which they give the right over one another's bodies to those acts which are capable of generation. Um, and it's something we see in the rite of the Roman ritual and the sacrament of marriage. And again, this the, the, the sacrament itself is very brief. And the husband and the wife, and as the traditional teaching has it, give the sacrament one to another. And they do it in the short sense. Do you, husband's name, take this woman here present for thy lawful wife, according to the right of Holy Mother of the Church? And then they are meant to answer, I do. And that's it. But that's the contract. They're, they're giving their consent. They agree to transmit to um, their partner um, that right over their own body, in order for those acts, as I said, that uh, of themselves are capable of giving life. And this is what St. Paul refers to in his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 7, where he says that, Let the husband render the debt to his wife, and the wife also in like manner to the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And in like manner, the husband also hath not power over his own body, but the wife. So in other words, that's really... Uh, in this transaction of justice, what's being given over. So the husband no longer truly can say of himself, it's my body, again, with respect to that particular action leading to life. And the same for the wife. It's why traditionally the church is always taught, but unsurprisingly, that um, for one of the other the spouses to refuse a reasonable request of their uh, either their husband or their wife uh, for the marriage debt it would entail a mortal sin mm. because we're dealing with a very strict and serious uh, right and justice at this point um, but again it's limited by those acts uh, which are are ultimately uh, conducive to generation right now on the supernatural level when we look at it a little bit from a sac point of view of the sacrament what is the marriage 
Well, here we'll, we can say is that it becomes, uh, by the will of God, a symbol of the union between Christ and the church. But we can see that a little bit in the second to the nuptial blessings, which again, you can read in your missal and um, the nuptial mass, where the church says, O God, who has sanctified the union of bridegroom and bride with so wondrous a sacrament, in order that the bonds of marriage may foreshadow the mysterious union of Christ and his church. So in other words, the husband and the wife, the fact that they are now linked by the supernatural bond, it's a reflection of the link that you find between our Lord and his bride, the church. And St. Paul does talk about that a bit in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says, let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. And therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let the wives be to their husbands in all things. And that's a, it's a deep reality. And in a way, part of the idea of our Lord, I'm sure, is that precisely in that fidelity that a man shows his wife and a wife shows her husband, uh, the children that come into the world are able to get an incarnate vision of the love of that our Lord Jesus Christ has for his church and vice versa. In other words, by that living and breathing reality in front of them, they can begin to understand that supernatural reality, which is not visible. And another thing to understand about that is that union between our Lord and his church is firstly and foremost affected on the cross. Mm. We can say that there's a parallel between our Lord and his church uh, and Adam and Eve. So as everyone surely remembers, uh, Eve is formed from the side of Adam. You know, in other words, God takes a rib from Adam and from that rib forms um, Eve. And similarly, the church, the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ, is taken from his side. You know, it's uh, the fathers of the church would speak of when his heart was opened by the spear and there poured forth blood and water. That was signifying the sacraments of Holy Eucharist and baptism, but also the church herself, his bride. And so St. Thomas, speaking about the question of why God chose to make Eve out of the rib of Adam, what that means, answers, uh, yes, firstly to signify the sole kind of social union of man and woman. For the woman should neither, quote, use authority over man, and so she was not made from his head, mm-hmm. nor was it right for her to be subject to man's contempt as his slave, so she was not made from his feet. Secondly, she was taken from his rib for the sacramental signification. For from the side of Christ sleeping on the cross, the sacraments flowed, namely blood and water, on which the church was established. So it's a very beautiful thing. And so, indeed... The union of a 
there's that link between Adam and Eve and Christ and the church, and similarly between the man and the woman in each individual Christian marriage. And we can even add to that that um, the um, union of our Lord and his church is a model of the sacrificial love that is meant to be found in a true Christian marriage. So again, uh, following St. Paul as our guide in his letter to the Ephesians, we see that husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the laver of water in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so also are men to love their wives as their own body. So in other words, just as Christ delivered himself for the church, so also a man is meant to deliver himself for his wife, you know, dedicating himself to her well-being and the well-being, of course, the children that are going to be born to them both. And finally, that's, you know, we also see that link uh, in the fruitfulness, because obviously the union of our Lord and the church on the cross is something which brings forth many souls to God. And similarly, the husband and wife are meant to bring many souls into the world to be given back to God. Now, because of this signification, it's normal that marriage is intimately linked with the Mass. Okay. In fact, it's foreseen that uh, for a Christian marriage, you begin with the, the, the marriage rite, which, as we said, is very brief. You basically have the exchange of the vows, which we read. In fact, it takes like 15 seconds and or 30 seconds of both when both parties have said it, and then they're married. Right. That's it. You know, that's that's it. Um, you normally also add to that a blessing of the rings, uh, which is signify the fidelity that they're going to swear to each other or have sworn to each other. But really, right after that, you go into the Mass. And that's willed by the Church, precisely because the Mass is the continuation of the cross. It's a continuation of the marriage of our Lord to his bride, the Church. And it's linking the, the new married Christian couple with what they're meant to symbolize, namely the union between our Lord and the church. And this follows from what we've talked about in, in previous episodes where, you know, with baptism, with penance, with all these other sacraments, it's, it, they are all of them intimately linked in one way or another to the sacrifice of the mass. You, you can't separate them. Oh, precisely. Exactly. I mean, whereas St. Thomas will say that the Eucharist, which of course is the, the fruit of the Mass, is that towards which all the other sacraments are directed in one way or another, right. um, either to prepare for them or to bring it about, obviously, like with the Sacrament of Holy Orders. Right. Now, a really important consequence of this reality, especially the sacramental reality, is that the Church has um, always been very clear that marriages between Catholics and even baptized non-Catholics is something that is forbidden. And not merely because, of course, of the danger, potentially, to the faith of either the spouse or the children that might be born of the union, but because, we should add, that there is a fundamental failure of that kind of marriage to represent the union of Christ and his church. Hmm. Because there's this profound disjunction in the faith. 
which indicates a um, which indicates that they're not truly symbolizing that submission of the church to Christ in a perfect and full manner. And indeed, the church is pretty severe. So uh, this can be best understood by looking at the, the canon law of the church, how the church used to speak of this in her canon law. So in the 1917 code, uh, canon 1060, we read... Um, that the church in a most severe manner, severissime, which is the superlative form of the Latin uh, adjective severely or severe, always prohibits that a matrimony be accomplished between two baptized persons of whom one is Catholic and the other is either from a heretical sect or a schismatic. And indeed, if there should be any danger of perversion of the faith of the Catholic spouse and of the children, this kind of marriage is forbidden by the divine law itself. She's, she's, she's pretty intense. Yeah. Okay. And there, of course, you know, you get more of the emphasis on the, the initial question, that danger to the faith. But again, even so, it's something that cannot represent the union of Christ and his church. And a little bit further on, a few canons later, uh, in fact, canon 1064, we read that the ordinaries and other pastors of souls should make take care, firstly, that they, it's a strong word in Latin, I'll read in Latin then, so fidelis amixtis nupsis quantum possum absteriont. So absteriont, the root of that is uh, terere, which is to terrify. So that they terrify the faithful away from mixed marriages insofar as they can. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty strong. And over and above that, so obviously that's not always going to work. Right. So sometimes uh, there's just going to be cases where for one reason or another, a person is convinced that they're in love with somebody who's non-Catholic, uh, that they're going to get married in that context. And so uh, sometimes at church, in order to prevent a greater evil occurring, in other words, them going and, let's say, getting married for a justice of the peace or, in fact, before a Protestant minister, which would be more detrimental, certainly more detrimental to the souls, you might then say, okay, look, we'll marry you. We'll, get you a dis- we'll give you a dispensation okay, in order to prevent that greater evil. But it's not a right. Uh, we're just going to permit you that. The church, nonetheless, in those instances, forbids mass to be celebrated after the marriage. Mm. And that's even in the case when you're dealing with a baptized soul, by its very definition, it is a sacrament. You know, it cannot not be a sacrament. Right. But she would still forbid the mass there. And she goes as far as to say uh, that in a marriage of that kind, all the sacred rites are forbidden. And even if, in order to prevent some greater evils, the ordinary de- uh, is able to, on occasion, uh, grant a few of the uh, usual ecclesiastical ceremonies, the mass itself is always forbidden. So under no circumstance can they participate in the mass. And again, it goes back to the fact that it cannot represent uh, the reality that's there. It's not because it's not because father is mad at you and, does, and wants to punish you by not having oh, a no. mass. It's because this union does not signify the mass. Therefore, we will not follow this marriage ceremony with the mass. 
Yeah, it is not fully. It does not signify that union between Christ and His Church, oh, right? Which is, of course, affected at the Mass, and as a result, there's that aspect. And of course, you know, it's another part of that is the Church wanting to not give what appears to be a public recognition and approval of what she views as in itself a grave evil. You know. Um. And perhaps the last thing that we can say about this traditional teaching of the church is that the sacrament of marriage gives a sacramental grace in two levels. So each each of the sacraments gives special actual graces to fulfill the let's say the responsibilities that they give, um, or to endure the burdens they impose. You know, like, for example, baptism, there is a sacramental grace to truly live as a child of God. Or confirmation, one's given the sacramental grace to be an effective soldier of Christ, provided one um, simply uh, makes use of it. And here, the couple are given the grace, certainly on the one hand, to carry the crosses inherent in married life, by being faithful to their responsibilities, and let's say that loyalty to each other, the fidelity that they promise, and more fundamentally, of course, to be able to die to themselves so as to give life to the children God will entrust to their care. And indeed, it is a real death. You know, it's uh, I remember when I was at the seminary, uh, one of the priests commented that, you know, it's easy for a priest to get, you know, in a nice routine and as a result to be kind of upset if he has to be called in the middle of the night to give sacraments of the, you know, the extreme unction to somebody who's dying, which actually just happened here fairly recently. Um, uh, fortunately, not me. It was, it was a priest who's more willing to get up in the middle of the night, <laughs> you know. And then he's like, okay, look, you know, the priest might get irritated, but a young mother is going to have to do that multiple times a night for many children, depending on how fruitful God allows her to right. be, you know, right. and to do so oftentimes is exhausting. Right. 20, 20 and, uh, there's years a particular, of sleeping through the night in some cases. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a profound grace to be able to handle that, and not only just to endure it, but in fact, to embrace it as a means of pleasing Almighty God. Right. And indeed, also, one of the other aspects of that sacramental grace is precisely to live up to that uh, fact that uh, the husband is called on to incarnate incarnate in a certain way our Lord, and the wife is meant to incarnate in a way the church and her submission to our Lord through her husband. You know, that's That takes a lot of death to self. Um, and so, you know, there's the God's provides that additional help by means of the sacrament. So, um, again, it's, uh, when we look at it, it's, it's a profoundly beautiful thing. It's from the hands of God. It's already sacred before even being elevated to that level of a sacrament. Precisely because it's meant to give a man and a woman, this one man, this one woman, this ability to share in the creative work of God, to raise up the child. And as the church has always taught, necessarily it means that um, this man and woman are linked forever until they should be parted by death. And, uh, you, know, you get that very beautiful expression in the, the English ritual. You know, it's not necessarily, it's not in the Roman ritual, but in the English ritual, we get that very beautiful phrase 
that the couple can uh, exchange their vows in. So, you know, I, man, take thee for my lawful wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. Mm-hmm. You know, they give themselves to each other so as precisely to um, to live up to this very beautiful and noble vocation which they've received and that responsibility that God entrusts them with to raise up saints to him. It is really beautiful. Um, I, I have a question that's a little bit off topic, but it was a question that was posed to me by some students in a catechism class I'm teaching. And that is, um, so for myself, myself and my wife, when we both die and hopefully attain heaven, we will not still be married in heaven, will we? Because until death do us part. How do how do married people, I mean, obviously we can recognize other souls in heaven, but would we still have a union of some sort in heaven? Okay, that's an excellent question. And it's uh, maybe just to kind of develop that a little bit, you know, it's it's one of the questions that was posed towards our Lord. Uh, towards the end of his public life by the Sadducees, in fact. So there was a group in Israel who denied the resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. And in order to try to make it sound ridiculous, they came up to him and said, okay, look, we got this very you know, odd case. Uh, you had a woman and she was married to a man and he had a number of brothers. And at a certain point, he died. And in order to fulfill the law, which requires one of the brothers to marry her and raise up children under the legal name of the first brother who was married to her. One did, but he died. No kids. The third one gets married to her. He dies. Fourth one gets married to her. He dies. And all the way through all the set. It's like, oh, all right. Well, apparently something. She had a hard time. And then they end by saying that at last, the the woman herself dies. Now, in the resurrection, whose husband or whose wife shall she be? Because she had all seven of them. And our Lord responds and like, you know nothing because you don't understand the power of God. Uh, in the resurrection, there shall be neither marriage, um, there shall be neither husbands nor wives, nor shall they be given in marriage because they shall be like the angels of heaven. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there's no longer any need for marriage precisely because we'll be eternal. We'll have eternal life. That being said, uh, what we can say um, is that uh, there will be, uh, let's say, a greater friendship even in heaven, between those that we've had a greater intimacy with in this life. Uh You know, you kind of get a reflection of that in the sense of, um, you know, patrons of religious orders. Um, It's the commonly held opinion that they have a greater care of all the members of their order because they have that spiritual link. All proportion guarded, you have something similar with a husband and a wife. They may not, let's say, have the exact same relationship in heaven, you know, they're not going to be in, sharing a house, you know, divvying up cooking and you know, laundry and stuff right. like that in, in you know, the eternal, the new Jerusalem. Um, but at the same time, if they've had a good marriage, if they've really responded well to the grace and made those efforts uh, under God's guidance to sacrifice themselves for each other, to deliver themselves for each other, they will bear the fruits of that for all of eternity huh. and have that greater friendship. Same thing with their children. Sure. You know, it's... Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the notes you pass along, Father, and, and you ended it with a beautiful and sacred reality. And that sums it up. It is. It, it truly is. Um, again, we've, we've said it a few times, all jokes aside, all difficulties aside, marriage is hard. 
um, just like, you know, the, the priesthood is hard, uh, but it is beautiful and there is beauty to find in it. Well, and I would even go a little bit step further. You, you mentioned it's hard. I would say it's crucifying. Yeah. It's a crucifying reality, and that's not by accident. Because, because again, remember that it's a symbol of our Lord's union to his church, which was affected on the cross. And it's meant precisely, well, to put to death all everything in us that's of the old man. Mm-hmm. And lived generously, you'll have a lot of opportunities for that. Mm-hmm. And if it's embraced as intended, well, it'll be a source of peace in the midst of sometimes really trying uh, and crucifying the difficulties. Father, thank you so much. We will see you uh, next week to go over the new rite of matrimony. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Very good. Well, looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. All right.